HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Sambar and Mapesh. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Jane Black, Brent Cunningham, husband, wife, superstar duo, and uh, um, contributors, well, I mean, co-spiriters of an upcoming book about Huntington. Is it Huntington, West Virginia? Huntington, West Virginia. And we'll get to that in a little bit. First, we'll give you a little background about who these husband and wife team are. Jane Black, um, seems like you've always been a writer. I have always been a writer. I stumbled into journalism. I was definitely not one of those people who was the editor of their high school newspaper. <laughs> um, but I... Oh, you just made me realize. I think I was. Yeah. <laughs> or yearbook. Yearbook. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I was going to be a policy wonk. That was my plan. But I was 21 and I wanted to move to San Francisco and there was no policy wonkdom out there. And I ended up getting a job at a real-time technology news site. Um, this was before technology, though, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It was right at the beginning of technology. Yeah. And um, 
I just fell in love. I was, I, I just thought, you mean you get to call people you don't know and ask them what they know and they stop what they're doing and tell you? <laughs> That's amazing. And um, what I realized reasonably quickly was that I didn't really want to be writing about technology, but that really anything that you know a lot about can be pretty fascinating. And that's what makes reporting and writing so much fun. More the reporting than the writing. Yeah. But um, And so, you know, I covered technology. I ended up moving to London to help the BBC start its news site. They hired me because I was from California, and I think they just thought I knew everything there was to know about the Internet, um, which was <laughs> fundamentally untrue, but still... A wonderful experience and um, to make a long story short I ended up back in New York covering technology because the um, economy tanked and I needed a job and while I was working at Business Week um, I convinced the lifestyle people there that what they really needed was a story about the renaissance in artisanal American cheese and I convinced the fromager at Picholine in New York that he should let me come and do some wine and cheese tastings with yeah. him. Was this Max at the it time? Was yeah, Max, yeah, yeah. Who is still a wonderful friend and colleague. And I went and I spent two hours doing this with him. And I came back to the office and I said, This is way more fun than my real job. <laughs> and I need to start doing this instead. And it was really one of these moments where, you know, I don't, I'm not a very, um, spontaneous person all the time. And within three months, I had quit my job. Um, sold my furniture, broken my lease, and moved back to London to go to culinary school. Wow. And Brent, did you have that same trajectory exactly? Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. No, I I never really wanted to be anything but a journalist or a writer. And, um, you know, I started stringing for my hometown newspaper when I was in, in high school, even. Um, what was your hometown? It was Charleston, West Virginia, which is about an hour away from the city we're writing about which is more than a little ironic. Um, and from there, I, you know, I went to work for that paper, and then uh, I moved abroad for three years and lived in Budapest, Hungary, and was a freelancer there. And uh, then I moved to San Francisco. We, turns out we were in San Francisco at the same time. Did we not never cro- met. Did not cross paths. No. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to the felicitous meeting right. at yes. some point. Right. Yes. It, that, was, that was to come later. Yeah. And, uh then went to uh, grad school at Columbia and got a writing fellowship at the Columbia Journalism Review, planning to stay a year. Um, and a decade later, I'm still there. I'm the managing editor. And uh, I don't know whether that's good or bad. It just is. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to the hour away, uh, spending some time okay. um, near your hometown. But back to Jane and this conversion into food, uh, this love of everything culinary switched. And there was this move to London. Um, what did you actually learn? You went to school there for cooking? I did. I went to a culinary school that was called Leith's. Um, and it was a, I chose that. There's sort of two culinary schools in London. One is Leith's and one is the Cordon Bleu. And I'm more of an Italophile at heart than uh, a Francophile. And I suppose I just thought the Cordon Bleu sounded too saucy and too French and too <laughs> restaurant focused. And, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe I would do catering, but, you know, I knew my love was journalism and writing, and I was just really interested in getting a base in cooking and understanding how, you know, ingredients and how to make things so that I could write 
better about it. I also come from a family where, you know, they're not food people. We didn't grow up making bread and jams, anything like that. So when I made bread in culinary school, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever made bread. So it really opened my eyes to certain kinds of cooking that I like to do. But also, you know, I would make mistakes. And then when I subsequently had to do restaurant reviewing and you taste a sauce and you think, oh, I made that sauce. It's totally over reduced. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was really able to learn something. And I think, you know, bring something because to restaurant criticism that I wouldn't have otherwise if I hadn't had to make all of those things. So you gain those foundations to be able to then critique later. And Brent. Was there food in your life? I'm, I'm assuming there had to have been because you yeah. Yeah, seem nurtured and well-fed right now. In, yeah. Indeed, very well-fed. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, food was always a part of my life. I never really thought about writing about it until it started to become an issue. Um, and then, because I never wanted to do um, chef profiles or restaurant reviews. I mean, I would read them, but I never really wanted to write them. Um, when foods, I guess late 90s, when it started people started to take it seriously as a policy story and a news story and a culture story. Um, that's when I got interested in, I mostly read about it and thought about it. And only in the last few years did I, have I started to write about it. So, um, I'm a, I'm a late comer to this thing, but you're also working on a book right now. Right. And what's it about? Well, it's about food, but it's, yeah. see, this is the only kind of food book that I could ever write, really, because it's it's kind of about food, but it's not really about food. It's about class and culture and, um, I guess, ultimately, maybe a little bit about policy. Uh, it, it's about the most unhealthy, unhappy city in America, Huntington, West Virginia, <laughs> which is, as I said, an hour from where I grew up, um, and their efforts to try to start to address some of that through building a healthier food culture, which may or may not involve a local food economy, which may or may not involve uh, better food in their schools, um, personal changes among families, or um, transformation among farmers who uh, for their whole lives have farmed, have grown tobacco or cattle and now are being confronted with the prospect of making vast sums of money um, selling uh, produce. But um, so yeah, it's about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. It w- it's funny to note that you're saying like during the '90s, uh, chefdom or you know culinary arts came to the forefront. But when did it start really intermingle- intermingling with politics? Hmm. I mean, I think for most of us, the, the the turning point was. I mean, Michael Pollan was writing the the pieces that would become the omnivore's dilemma in the early aughts and um so i think if you were paying attention that's kind of when it started james might even know that it started earlier than that but uh, for me that's kind of when it began fast food nation came out in 2004 i think it was yeah um so i think right about then uh people it's funny because it if you if you follow these things you have a sense that it's been this way for a long time and and people who have even older than we are would say, well, we were doing that in the 70s, and to some extent they were, but we definitely got away from it. And, you know, time will tell whether or not what's happening now is uh, kind of fades or moves forward. Yeah. Actually, we were both in Boston, uh, Jane and I, in the early aughts. Uh, you were working for Boston Magazine as a the food editor, food the restaurant food reviewer. Yeah. yeah, and it was interesting because all of these issues were coming up, and I, of course, was drawn to them immediately because, you know, I'm a reporter at heart and I'm interested in the complexity of things and I didn't really just want to do hey everybody has rabbit on their menu which is a lot of what these magazines trade in and um, so I would say well here's this person who's growing it this way and 
and it was a little hard to shoehorn them in, but I managed to do it. And, and I think that, you know, for me, the combination of chefs and the policy thing was what allowed me to get those stories into the magazine because there was no way they were going to let me write a story like that unless there was a big, beautiful picture of, you know, short ribs and a chef yeah. in whites. And so, you know, and I think that's what's propelled it into the mass consciousness is kind of, it's an easier way for people to get at these issues. Do you remember your first story in Boston Mag that was kind of that amalgamation? Oh, gosh, no. Yeah. What was my first story? Do you know what my first story no, in Boston Magazine was? No, I mean, I was a lowly cook that didn't even read the magazine. Oh, well, that yeah, that's fine. I re- actually, one, the, the first longer story I wrote for them was about restaurants in the middle because I've always believed that the sign of a good restaurant town is one where you can go out and have a good meal without spending a ton of money because it's easy to spend, you know, to spend a ton of money and have a good yeah. meal. And it was at that time in Boston where that middle was filling in, and it was, you know, I, it, that interestingly was in in many way in many parts an economic story because it was if you're a chef, how do you rent the space in the right place and sell the food for that little money? and still be able to make your money back. And so, you know, I managed to write a business, yeah. <laughs> restaurant business story. So that was fun. How, how did they? Is there a lot of the middle still existing in Boston? Well, you know, I moved away in 2007, and I, I took a job at the Washington Post, so I'm not as up to date. But I, I think it has filled in to a certain extent. I mean, one of the big challenges there was that you're looking for a small space. I think it was... 2,500 square feet, and that's exactly, apparently, the space that Starbucks wants. <laughs> so you're always up against Starbucks, and you're always going to lose. And so, you know, it tends to be a real estate uh, issue more than actually making your money on the food. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that coffee is still inelastic, you know, that an empty space, a void, can always be filled with a barista. Right. Constantly. There are never too many yeah. of them, yeah. <laughs> but then at Washington Post, uh, you started being able to push the politics forwards in food. Yeah, and I mean, for any Washington people who are listening, I'm sorry before I say this, but, <laughs> you know, I got there, and I was so used to writing about chefs and restaurants. And Washington, it has come a long way. I'm a native Washingtonian, so I'm allowed to say this. But it's still a steak town, you know. I mean, there are other things, but it's a pretty conservative crowd, um, and... So I got there and I was trying to write about this stuff and it wasn't grabbing me. And I thought, well, what is in Washington? Well, you know, the policy's here. And so I started um, getting to know people at the USDA, getting to know people at um, the Department of Education who were dealing with school lunch and just kind of decided that food and food policy was going to be my beat because no one else was really doing it as well as I thought I could do in Washington. Yeah, and it wasn't just Washington. It was national, going to Florida, uh, seeing seeing the strife of... Tomato pickers and their struggle. and Yeah, they were very, you know, we, I was working at the Post and probably, if it's possible, an actu- a worse time for newspapers than it is now. And they were still very generous with letting me go places and see things that I wanted to see. And, you know, that story um, about, you know, workers' rights in the Florida tomato fields and um, making sure that they got paid a living wage was a big story. And in fact, you know, it, it, the story that I ended up writing was about one company brokering a deal with them, which led to a whole series of deals, which has been a huge step forward for them. So I was excited to be part of that bl- story. Yeah, and blazing the path for people to actually realize that, you know, uh, trade isn't a bad thing sometimes. Right, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and actually talk about the moment you two met and how you ended up in West Virginia for a lovely uh, post-honeymoon You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jane Black and Brent Cunningham, about to explain to us how these two met and how they spent time in West Virginia. Well, well, based on what Jane just said, it's a good thing that Washington is a subpar food town. I would never <laughs> use those words. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, I would never yeah. use those words. Uh, otherwise, we probably would never would have met because... Um, uh, about a year before we met in 2009, um, May, May, June, June, June right. <laughs> it's funny that I let him tell this story because usually the woman tells the how we met right. story, but, but Brent's story is really a better story. Right. So about a year before that, I was on the phone with Tom Philpot, who you guys, your audience may know. Yes. Um, uh, but would you explain to those Tom, that might Tom, not? Tom is a food writer, writes a lot about policy issues, um, Sustainable Agriculture, formerly for uh, for Grist, now for Mother Jones. Um, and he and I were on the phone, and we were commiserating about how few prominent voices there were on these issues in the United States. Um, you know, once you get beyond Michael Pollan, it, was, it falls precipitously. And I said, well, who do you read do you think should be elevated to that level? And he started mentioning a few people, and he mentioned someone named Jane Black at the Washington Post, and I scribbled her name down in the margin of my notebook and then never heard of her, did not read the, the food section of the Post at the time, but I started to read it periodically. And um, I think right after Obama's inauguration, or, or right before his inauguration, she had a really lovely essay, a uh, sharp essay in there, about how the food movement had a message problem, that in asking for everything, they risked getting nothing. And I thought that was great. And at the time, I had an assignment for the nation to review a couple books on famine. And I I was attempting to kind of connect that to the sustainable food movement here in the United States. And I found that essay very valuable. And I quoted extensively from it. So while I was working on that uh, and thinking about her and her work, uh, I met, well, I knew one of her sisters, it turned out. I didn't know that she was her sister, who lives here in New York. And... um, she offered to set us up. She said, do you want to meet my sister? And she said she lives in D.C. And I said, no, I do not want to meet your sister in D.C. because I live in New York. And, uh, so and for there are four million therefore, beautiful right, women yeah. here. Right. I said, I don't need to go to D.C. to find somebody. Uh, and then she persisted and brought it up later in the evening. And, and I said, well, why do you think we would be a good fit? And, and keep in mind, I knew this woman, her sister, just a little bit. We had a mutual friend. Didn't even know her last name, really. And uh, she said, well, you're really interested in food. You like to cook. She's a food writer at the Washington Post. My ears perked up. And I said, what's your last name? She said, Black. I said, is your sister Jane Black? She said, <laughs> yes. And I said, well, I do want to meet her then. And two weeks later, she came up. We went on a date. And, and we fell in love. Uh, I like how you came up to New York because he didn't want to go down to D.C. <laughs> well, I wanted to come to New York anyway, yeah, so yeah. it was kind of well, a win-win for me. Well, and the way she was pitched to me by her sister was that she comes to New York all the time. Right. So. Which yeah. I did. Yeah. So. Do you remember your first meal together? Uh, oh, we had... Yeah, a, you tell this yeah. one. It was, it was kind really, of a disaster. Yeah. Well, and you know, we had we had two, two bad things, um, and... Um, Actually, we met for drinks and oysters, and that was fine at a place called Ditch Plains because it was con- convenient to where I was staying. And then, you know, we actually liked each other, and so we wanted to go out to dinner, and, and it was Saturday night, and, of course, you couldn't get in anywhere, and we tried to go to Lupa, and we tried to go to wherever, and we ended up at Cafe Colonial, which was now defunct. terrible and has now <laughs> gone out of business. But we now have this um, 
uh, what's it called? Not a ritual, a tradition of of going to really, really good restaurants that we want to try on the anniversary of the day we met to make up for How the bad, bad meal. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we're still traumatized. Uh, I feel like a lot of people that work in the food industry or subsidiarily um, are lightning poles for bad service. Um, <laughs> without announcing that they're there, are usually the ones that get water spilt on them. I know I am usually soaked a couple times a year. and right. Just how it goes but, but after that initial meeting i mean within 18 months you were married yeah well you know at our age we didn't want to waste time so we're um. old <laughs> but i mean it was interesting because you know the whole book came about because if i can jump ahead to oh that, yeah please because you know we wanted to be in the same place and um we were trying to decide between washington and new york and and you know i thought well if i could write a book then i'd have the freedom to be somewhere else and I wrote this, st- we were, I was trying to think of the right idea and running things by my agent. And um, I had written this story in April of 2010 about Jamie Oliver going to Huntington, West Virginia, of all places. And the story was right before the last episode of the show. And it, The show's uh, Food Revolution? Food oh. Revolution. It was the first series, the first time they did it. And, you know, the, the story said, essentially... The revolution has been televised. Now what? What happens to this town? And Brent and I were walking along that weekend after it was published, and he said... Well, but, but wait a minute. Just sorry to interrupt. But uh, So the funny thing was is that she went, down, she went to do this story, oh, and right. I, I, because I still knew people down there. First of all, Appalachia and West Virginia are, you know, I think rightfully wary of outsiders in a lot of ways because people come in and exploit them, make fun of them. And leave. So, and leave. And so when Jane went there, I connected her with a lot of people and who, because she was able to use my name and say my, my boyfriend is her fiance at that point, uh, was, you know, is from West Virginia, it opened a lot of doors for her. And so I became her hillbilly <laughs> fixer. Yeah, he was my hillbilly fixer. And anyway, so we were walking around that weekend after the story was published. And he said, you know, there's really a lot more there than a 1200 word article. And I said, yeah, but that's your book because you've always wanted to write about food and class in Appalachia. And he said, well, it's your book. You're the one who needs to write a book. And then suddenly we thought, well, if the goal is that we should be in the same place, then either one of us going to West Virginia while the other one is in New York or Washington doesn't solve any of our problems. And what if we did it together? And so we spent the summer writing the proposal and um, they sent it in while we were on our honeymoon and we got back from our honeymoon the day we, it was pretty much the day we got back from our honeymoon. It was the week after we got back, yeah. Yeah, uh, we sold it and I quit my job and he took a leave and we packed up a truck and moved to West Virginia. Two months later, you're there. Yeah. So, West Virginia. One, I remember talking to you about things you were wary of before arriving there and that there was a stop at Whole Foods. Uh. There was. There was a, we were in the truck, in the budget <laughs> truck, and I, you know, Brent was saying, oh, you know, don't be ridiculous, which it, to his credit was mostly true. And I said, well, we should stop and, and get some lunch. But really, I was going in to get a whole cooler full of supplies to take down there that I didn't <laughs> think they were going to have. I was worried about not having cheese. I was worried about you know, getting access to meat because, I mean, I'm kind of a pain in the neck. I mean, I, I, I like good food. I will eat, you know, if I'm hungry, but meat I won't eat unless I kind of know where it's from because I just don't like it enough to bother to eat it unless it's really, really good. Yeah. So, you know, we picked up a whole bunch of supplies. I bought, I brought fish sauce 
I mean, I, I didn't know they'd have fish sauce, which then I went, you know, and they have these huge supermarkets and they have everything and which, you know, was a well, lesson. Not, not everything. Yeah. They have a lot. But a lesson to me and how, you know, the stereotypes that we urban coastal people have about middle America. Yeah. I mean, the democratization of the grocery store is an amazing story. But at the same time, it, it was a problem, uh, you know, pitting up Walmart against local green markets, which I don't know if they even existed there. Um, and what they did have that you hadn't found here were things like obesity and diabetes. And I mean, in, in attempt to uh, find a healthier, you know, food class there, what did you find? Well, are, are you ta- are you talking about people or are you talking about uh, actual at resources? Food? Yeah, resources. both. I mean, people yeah. and institutions well, that, you know, feed those people. Well, it's interesting because not long after getting there, we began to stumble upon kind of an underground food network of the relative handful of people there who are interested in these things. Um, they would do things like one person would go to um, Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a Whole Foods in Columbus, and there's another fancy supermarket in Cincinnati. And they would post on their Facebook page that they were going, so people would put in orders. Um, there were, you know, there were farmers who were raising meat and selling it, but not in any kind of formal way. You had to kind of be in the know. And then you could get chicken and beef um, and lamb and eggs. And, and the amazing thing about it was, and this is what killed us when we got back, even though we were thrilled to be back and have all these resources, is that there, because nobody values it, it's so cheap. I mean, you know, the meat the meat was a little more expensive, but things like eggs and the like, if you get them locally, I mean, they're no more expensive than anything you would get at Walmart. And then we came back here, you know, we went from $2 eggs to 6 7 and $8 <laughs> yeah. eggs, and I, I was a little sad. Yeah, but you had been telling me, too, that it wasn't really a matter of price or access uh, that kind of constructed the food culture down there, that it was something else. Well, we did a, an experiment that we hope will end up in the book um we kind of we we both out of necessity and for the reporting purposes we cooked three meals a day at home um pretty much every day i mean we did we went out with sources and things like that but um and kept track of what we spent and what we ate and um you know it it came up we totaled it up at some point and it was under three dollars per person per meal and we were eating mostly organic produce purchased at kroger which is a grocery store chain um, and you know, then the meat, almost all the meat we got, we got through this kind of underground thing that we were telling you about in eggs the same way. Um, cheese was actually a problem. It's funny that you mentioned cheese cause cheese we did pretty much import as it were from other places. Um, so, so yeah, so I think we're going to try in the book to challenge this conventional wisdom that access and affordability are really the keys. I mean, they definitely are important. Don't get me wrong. But even when you have access and even when you can't afford it, um, there's a culture of choosing other things in America. And it's a question of it being easy on the one hand, um, you know, microwaving a frozen pizza instead of making soup from scratch with the leftovers. But it's also a question of taste. I mean, it really is. I, I tell this story far too often, but, you know, the, the classic moment uh, was that for me was this young mother who we're writing about and she 
you know, she was aware that she needed to cook more and she knew that it was supposed to be better. And so she got this recipe for homemade macaroni and cheese and she went to the store and she bought three different kinds of cheeses and she bought the noodles and she bought everything and it cost, you know, a certain amount. I remember she said she didn't buy the mascarpone because she didn't know what it was (laughs) and she didn't know why it was so expensive. And she came home and she made it. And then she said, you know, I just don't like it as much as the stuff in the box. Yeah. And so, you know, when when Kraft macaroni and cheese, I don't know what it costs, 79 cents, 99 cents, you know, versus $6 in ingredients and you have to make it, it's hard to persuade her that she should be doing that. And I think that that's one of the messages that we have in this book is that the the food movement, if you will, seems to think it can persuade people that, you know, if they just get it, then they'll want to spend all, you know, if they just taste that macaroni and cheese, they'll want to spend the time doing it, but not if you like craft better. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just nostalgia, though. It's like development of a palate. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we've been fed this food um, for 50, 60 years at least uh, and, and told not to worry about food, to, that food should be quick and easy and cheap and um, should taste like this. And I think that's a really going to be a real difficult thing to change in this country because the people who are inclined to to change to go away from that uh, I think a lot of them have already done it and you know and so now the hard part in some ways begins because it's the people often the people who have diabetes or heart disease or are overweight are the ones who actually like McDonald's I mean they're not going to McDonald's because of the dollar meal or because it's convenient they like it yeah they like it you know, and so, and, 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 you know, you, I tell people this all the time and you see this look on their face and, and, and they just can't understand that. And we've got to understand that. Yeah. That's or really it's important. a, it's a lost, it's not only losing the battle, it's losing the war. Yeah. I mean, have you found ways to make them dislike it? I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we don't know. Uh, but right. We have a theory. <laughs> yeah. We have an untested theory. Um, <laughs> Which is that, you know, the one thing that seems to resonate with people is that, and we're talking about working class Americans, is that they don't like to be manipulated. They do not like to feel like someone is taking advantage of them. It's that anti-corporate, anti-government, stay out of my backyard kind of feeling, which is fueling the Tea Party and all kinds of other political things in movements in this nation at this moment. But... So, so our theory is, you know, maybe if we could really pull back the curtain for people and help them to understand how, you know, this stuff that they're being told is a bargain is really something that's taking advantage of them, that they might just get angry enough to say, well, you know, well, in that case, maybe I'll just try to make, you know, try to make it from something else. And I think this kind of consumer... Um, empowerment, empowerment, right? Yeah. Is could be really important. I mean, and the, the parallel that we at least are thinking about is the same with tobacco. I mean, you told people not to smoke for a while, and they said, "Well, we like it." Then you told them that actually the tobacco companies knew that it was killing them and kept it secret from them. And all of a sudden, a lot of people said, "Well, I'm not going to smoke anymore. Yeah. You know, screw you." So, you know, we wonder if there might be a parallel like that for food. The, the truth p- campaign yeah. kind of thing. And, um, yeah. It's- well, it's funny that you mentioned, too, that some of the farmers that you met in West Virginia were tobacco farmers. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that they were asking to now be, uh, you know, produce growers. Yeah. So uh, just a funny little allegory yeah. to point out. Yes, yeah. exactly. But, I mean, the problem with food is that it's so much more complicated. With tobacco, it's tobacco. With food, 
there are infinite number of combinations of different things you can eat. And so you well, could tell someone not to eat this kind of food, but then they just move to a different processed food. Well, so. And also, I think, and this is a very important point, you don't have to smoke, but you have to eat. And so that's a, a key difference that has been pointed out to us by people who think that the truth campaign for food might not have the same impact. But I still think it's something that's worth exploring. Yeah. Well, you don't have to eat specific things. Exactly. Right. So, and I hope the truth does come out and looking forward to seeing this book. Um, it's still a work in progress. Very much so. <laughs> are, are there still trips to West Virginia? I'm going tomorrow. Excellent. And Jane, are you heading down there too? I was there last month and I'm probably going in October as well. And then we'll probably take the winter off, go back and visit again in the spring and summer, and then hopefully be finished writing. Yeah. And I mean, in the short time that you've been there already, have you seen changes? Do, do you feel like you're imparting some kind of a, you know movement there? Or are you trying to be as... Well, subjective objective yeah possible. we're not really um well, i mean we we've we've talked this is funny because yes we have definitely facilitated certain things there but only by not not intentionally and we try not to. right but there there are things happening there i mean i think it's important to keep in mind for us and for everybody else to keep in mind that by the time this book is published and people have read it and already forgotten about it we're still not going to know whether the things that are happening there are going to work this is a generational process, and there are people there. I mean, Jane has said a lot of times that being in West Virginia in, in some ways feels like a time warp, uh, and, and I think that applies to the food uh, revolution, too. I mean, that some of the people there who, who we are writing about and who we care deeply about are doing things that um, other communities in other places had, did, had, you know, begun, had begun a decade ago. And um, so... It's a very slow thing, and we have to look for incremental victories there. Right, and I just want to clarify, because I'm nervous, that it's only a time warp in food terms. Yeah. <laughs> because it is interesting, you know, they'll, they'll start on this local thing, and you'll think, well, I, I was writing about that seven years ago. But, it's right. you know, it's only just moving beyond the coasts and moving into, you know, working class and middle class communities, places where there isn't you know, such a huge volumes of people right. that there are always enough people who are willing to kind of go that extra mile. I mean, in a place like Huntington, there's a core group of people that really care, but are they enough to support local farmers? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think I, I use it as like a benchmark when I see someplace like McDonald's, say, organic hamburger. Absolutely. Yeah. And see, and that, that kind of stuff gets pounced upon by um, the, the, the food movement folks um, who are used to being in places where the where the the process is that much further down the road but i think one of the things that became really clear to us is those kinds of changes however insignificant they may seem to people sitting here in roberta's um are huge in places like huntington because that's like jane said that's what where people eat that's what they like to eat and so if you can begin to make that healthier and they don't even have to lift a finger. Right. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Why does right. Why does eating well have to be a punishment? You have to pay more. You have to cook more. You have to do more dishes. I mean, what if the solution were that it was still easy, but that, you know, all that work was going on behind the scenes? I mean, that would be a real revolution. Yeah. Something I'd like to see and read about. <laughs> and hopefully we do get to read about. Jane, Brent, thank you for being on the show today. Looking forward to seeing this book. And uh, if you happen by West Virginia, ask for the underground cattle trade. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having yeah. us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. 
Cheers.